0: Lord, may your word touch our hearts, may your word bring encouragement, correction, may it train us up in righteousness, may it enable us to fulfill the Great Commission and to be witnesses for you wherever you have placed us. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable to you, and that you will help us to grow together as a church of God. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last two Sundays, we've been looking at an angry and indignant Jesus. You know, very often, very, very often, anger leads to sin, and even a foothold for the devil. But of course, we know that in Jesus' case, it was a righteous anger. The kind of anger where when you get angry but you do not sin. And this is told us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where it says, Be angry but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger, nor give place to the devil or give the devil a foothold. So we know, we know that Jesus' anger was a righteous anger because he did not sin. The last two sermons was about. Um, Jesus' anger and indignation over corruption. Firstly, the corruption, the corrupted interpretation of Scripture, which bound man to legalism and eventually to misery, that you cannot even heal on a Sabbath. It was, I think, a power game to make people fall in line, to live within the lines of a regulated, legalistic, man-made religion. And that Jesus was indignant. The second sermon last Sunday was about corruption in the temple, which did not distinguish between the holy and the profane, that they defile the holy by dishonest exploitation of commerce and, and trading and exploiting uh, people, so much so that Jesus made a cord uh, a, a whip, and then he chased these traders, and these exploiters out of the temple. Today, we look at a corrupted view of children. And there are two instances recorded for us across the three synoptic Gospels uh, uh, about Jesus and children. There were no miracles recorded that Jesus performed uh, for the children, but there was this sense of great indignation that Jesus had which was recorded for us. Firstly, let's turn to Mark chapter 10 and let us read from verse 13 to 16. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. What is the context? Let me speculate a little because the verses before Mark chapter 10, verse 13, were about Jesus and the disciples arguing about some very weighty matters, doctrinal matters of marriage, divorce, remarriage. And let me speculate again. I think that the disciples were really fed up with Jesus' teaching. Jesus' answer was not to their liking, that God put men together and they shall not separate, they should not divorce, because that is sin. And it was not to the disciples' liking, so much so that they said, maybe in frustration, they said, like, like that, ah, might as well not get married, ah, if they spoke English. And in the midst of this argument, there perhaps were some noisy children. And the disciples, with, with their, their, their hearts already stirred up about such a high view of marriage that it's not easy or not possible to divorce, they dare not rebuke the parents, and so they took it out on the children. Maybe. Maybe Jesus saw the hurt expressions on the children's faces, and maybe he saw how it turned from from innocence and joy to fear and rejection because the disciples were rebuking them. Maybe he saw the bewildered faces of the children. So, so what have I done? The children might be asking, what have I done to deserve being scolded like this? You know, it reminds me of uh, uh, a capping uh, when we went to Teban Garden several years ago and knocked on doors, and I was going uh, with uh, Auntie Ng Siang. I think I've told this before. Knocking on a door, and this grandma and the little child uh, came out, and the grandma started saying, Aiyah, this child, ah." Uh, your father the one you see, your father not at home, your father the one you, and he's lousy, la, don't study. Uh, and, and all that, you can see the child's face just, you know, I, I, I don't know what the word for it. The, the child was so um, so disappointed until Eng Siang said, but no, in CSC, he's very well behaved. In fact, he's doing good. And then you see the child's <laughs> his face totally changed. Maybe that was what happened with, uh, with Jesus and the children in Mark chapter 10. And what did Jesus say in the end? In verse 15, he says, if you will not receive the kingdom of God, if you will not come to me like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And those are very strong words. He didn't say, you stand the risk of not entering the kingdom of God. He says, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And this account was witnessed by all the gospel writers, or the three synoptic gospel writers, recorded for us in In Matthew 19, in Mark 10 that we read, as well as in Luke 18. There is another instance which showed Jesus' attitude toward children, and this can be found in Matthew 18, in Mark 9, and in Luke 9. So let me read Matthew 18, verse 1. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What is the context? The disciples, if you read the verses earlier, were arguing, arguing about who was the greatest among them. Mark 9 says that they were arguing about it on the road. Luke 9 says that the argument started. You know what a Jewish argument is like? I have some experience with uh, Israeli military advisors, what is it, 20 years ago. (laughs) Even when they are talking, they are like arguing and scolding one another and they get very heated when they talk with one another, but they are good friends, okay? But that's the kind of uh, 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 culture that, that was there. And, and you can imagine that Andrew Andrew will, will say, surely greatness is based on seniority. I was the first disciple to be called by Jesus. I was the first to be chosen. And you can imagine Philip saying, no, it's about outreach, it's about missions and evangelism. You see, I brought Nathaniel. But Andrew then, then counter uh, very quickly, but I brought Simon Peter. And Peter says, you know, that when Jesus is not around, I'm the boss. Everybody knows that I'm a natural leader. And Matthew says, I'm the big giver. Okay, my money is not exactly clean. It comes from, from illegal taxes, but I'm the ministry funds provider. And Judas will say, but I keep the account straight. And I have my own definition of straight. And John says, it's not about power, guys. Not about power, not about money. It's all about love. And I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Thomas says, I doubt you guys recognize my final qualities and my heart of worship. Surely it is all about my Lord and my God. And Simon the Zealot says, my title says it all. It's all about zeal. And I'm the zealot. And these disciples were dumb enough to come to Jesus in the midst of this kind of argument and ask Jesus to adjudicate. How would Jesus settle this pecking order? How did he do it? He called a child to him. And someone uh, mentioned this phrase in a book, I can't remember where. It says, He called a sweet face in a crowd of super egos to come. So let's read from verse 2, Matthew 18. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, who is standing right here, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That was the lesson. And I think of I think of this picture which I took uh, was it several years ago, I think at a church camp. You know, we went to Batam on a on a church camp. We took one afternoon to do some missions, to give us some food, play some games with the children. And at the end of it, I was surprised that they came out, the children to express their thanks and their honour. And the way they do it is they don't shake your hands, they take your hands and they put it on their forehead. I thought it was such a beautiful gesture of of humility. And you can see all our our youth and our young adults were like, wow, so fun, right? You take my hand and uh, put it on your forehead. Such a sweet thing. And Jesus says, if you cannot humble yourself like this child, If you cannot humble yourself to do something like this, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, much less be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Continuing in verse 6 of Matthew 18. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes, and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. What do you think? If man, if a man, sorry, uh, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And that is the beginning of the doctrine of, um, of guardian angels, okay? It's only one verse, so it's a disputable doctrine. Anyway, Um, And then Jesus said, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders astray, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And those were the fierce teachings of Jesus. And perhaps uh, the fiercest rebuke recorded for us that Jesus ever made on earth. You know, in case you think that Jesus was the original, original mafia chief, you know, about, about tying uh, uh, a millstone around the neck and then, and then drowning the guy, uh, the literary style uh, you read about gouging eyes, cutting off hands, is a literary style of hyperbole, right? So you purposely make it like so extreme. It's hyperbole. Actually, the punishment should be worse than this. Tying a millstone around your neck and drowning in a sea. It should be worse than that if you cause one of these little children to sin and if you do not welcome them. And can you blame Jesus for saying that? Jesus who is omniscient, that means he knows everything from beginning to end. He knew in the year whatever, 30 or 33 A.D., what would happen in the year 2013. Can you blame him? Because one day, children will be abused. They will be abused with what might be called the overt sin of commission, child abuse, as in child prostitution, child labour or child slavery, child soldiers, and children infected with AIDS. Someone once said that the ultimate test of civilization will be in what it does to children. A nation's civility is tested by what it does to its children, and we are not civilised at all by what we have been doing to our children. Maybe it doesn't happen in Singapore, or maybe you know of some of this stuff, That happens in Singapore. But it happens all around the world. I read this book uh, some time ago, and I've been keeping it on my my desk for a while. I'm going to put it back into the library uh, this afternoon or tomorrow morning. It's written by this guy called Wes Stafford, and the title is Too Small to Ignore. It's an excellent book. I would encourage you to read it. Uh, It is where Wes Stafford Talked about how he was abused. He was an MK. MK means missionary kid. He was a child of uh, missionary parents who were in Africa, and so he was put away in a Christian mich- uh, Christian boarding school where he was abused, physically, sexually, mentally. And I tell you, the mental torture was worse than the physical torture. And I read this from his book. Some of the teachers in the Christian boarding school told Wes and the other little children, if you tell your parents you are unhappy here, you will be Satan's tool to destroy their ministry in Africa. They will become discouraged and leave the field. If that happens, there will be Africans in hell because of you can you tell that to a child, a Christian child in a Christian boarding school? And that was (laughs) what happened to him. After many years, he was standing before a crowd of 2,400 Christian counselors. And he related this story. You know, some, some adults must have had a clue about the kind of abuse that was going on in this Christian school. But I think they just ignore it. Because after all, they're kids. After kids, Can you believe them? So they just ignore. And this might be called the... We had the co- overt sin of commission. That means physical child abuse and and, and, and uh, child prostitution and all that. But there is also this covert sin of omission. You just ignore. Ignore. Yes, the missionaries are very important. But the MKs, the children, not so important. They're just kids. And they are looked down upon. And West Stafford said before these 2,400 counselors that the worst thing that happened to him okay, the physical abuse and all that were terrible, the mental abuse was terrible, but the worst thing for him was nobody believed him. And everybody ignored him, and that was the most terrible thing. And at that conference, be, before 2,400 counselors, the, the, they, they all like kind of stood up and said, We believe you. Finally, the the, the curse or that hurt was broken, but it was 35 years too late. That you don't believe because just a kid. He's just a kid. Matthew 18.10 says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father. as um, a person who is very interested in photography, one of the lessons, uh, one of the key that they tell you when you take pictures of children is not to take a picture like that, which I took. Okay, it's like you're standing so high up and you're pointing your camera down at the person, you're like looking down uh, on the person. Okay, in this case, the bus was moving and I just quickly took a shot, okay? So I knew the theory, but I forgot, I forgot, I just took a very, very quick shot. So you don't look down on the child. What you should do is this, right? You, you go down on your knees, and then you are at eye level with the child, and you take a picture like this, which I think is quite nice, don't you think? Uh, because I took it. Uh-huh. So something like this. Do not look down on one of these little ones, Jesus said. And I think there is a very special place in God's heart for children. Or for the poor. You read it throughout scriptures, right? But some say that there is a special place in hell for child abusers. Okay, that is not in scripture. (laughs) Okay, but uh, when you think about some of the horrific child abuse, uh, yeah, maybe that's true. I don't know. You know, very often among pastors, um, you are asked, So, how big is your church? And I tell them, almost 600. You know, there's a tendency among pastors to inflate the figures. <laughs> but am I inflating? Because I add the children. Right, over here, 250, roughly. Sometimes 300, 250. Uh, second service, about 90, almost 100. Chinese service, 120, sometimes 150. Children, 90, sometimes 60. Add all that together, I think about 560, almost 600 can <laughs> some say that the, oh, the children the children they are the church of tomorrow right or wrong no they are the church today they are here today they are the church of today that's why i include the numbers i'll tell you another story about uh, this guy called tony campolo um, any of you heard of tony campolo a very famous Uh, Christian writer, pastor, sociologist. And uh, he was also one-time spiritual counselor to Bill Clinton when Clinton fell from grace and had all his sin publicly uh, exposed and all that. And one day he was thinking, what kills a church? Um, I I think he was, as a sociologist, was trying to do some research on that. What kills a church? And he decided to make his own boyhood church a case study because that church died. So he went and he asked, and and amazingly, there were archives from that church still around. (coughs) So he he went into that storeroom, and he said he brushed away the cobwebs, and he took out the files, and he took a look, and he was wondering, how do I analyze this? Annual reports, because the church produces an annual, annual report, which we do not. And he said, how about the year that I became a Christian? So he went to that particular year, he took out the annual report, and the annual report said, Well, this has not been a very good year for the church. You see, uh, our collections have come down. Uh, Our missionary activity is very subdued, hardly anything. Uh, Our attendance has declined. And there were only three conversions uh, that year, and they were just children. Recorded. They were just children. And Tony Campolo says, I was one of those three children in that year. And I know the other two. One spent his life in missionary service in Africa. And the other one became the president of a seminary. What? Three, just three children? That's why the church died. So, the conclusion is the church begins to die. When we look at children, and we say, ah, they're just children. That's how the church dies. You know, I'm one of, I think, one of those people who are not easily hurt. Right, not easily hurt because i got got thick skin. Okay, when I grow older, I'm more easily hurt. And I'm more cranky nowadays. But one time I was accused, and this came through, I don't know, second or third hand or fourth hand, because huh? not directly to the face. Accused of not liking children. And it was a very deep hurt. Okay, I've since forgiven and forgotten, I think. Well, I haven't forgotten because I raised it here. <laughs> and I said, I will retire in a heartbeat as soon as I have a grandchildren. Right, so I'll desert you all. I look after my own, own grandchildren. Okay, that's what I will do. Because I love kids, and then to be accused of not loving kids, you know why? At the time we were discussing uh, about family worship. You know, um, we have this term called family worship here in PPH. That, yeah, the children must join us, must join us for the wo- full worship, and then they will go down for their own activities. And, and I was advocating a position that the children, when they come up here, like this morning, uh, this morning very good because a lot of them came to the front, the parents brought them to the front. We had a couple of children's songs. They were able to come into worship. But I said, the children cannot see, they cannot sing the songs that we sing, and they can, cannot connect with, with the kind of messages that we proclaim. And then we call it a family worship. Who is it for? It's for the adults. The adults who feel good when the children are by our side worshipping as a family. And sometimes we let the children read a book and sometimes we give them a piece of paper and let them do some drawing and colouring and call it family worship. I said, no, why don't we change the style, right? Why don't we have worship start at 9am for the children and we provide for them uh, a a good uh, worship and and get them to lead worship themselves uh, and and to do PowerPoint and and all that. So those were the beginnings in, in those days when we were talking about this have a specially designed worship just for the children so that it really works for them. And in some sense, this is like benign neglect, or you can call it the sin of omission, when we don't think about the children. We look down on them and we say that, yeah, they just come along, they just come along, and then we have family worship and expect that it works for them as it works for us. So some kind of benign neglect. But there is worse, right? If a parent advised the children to skip church because of PSLE or O-levels or even university exams, what are we saying? We are saying that God can wait, right? Exams comes first. There are other priorities in life. God is not number one. Your exams comes first. Your exams comes first. Your PSLE number comes first. We have even cases that I've heard of where the parent will tell the child, until your grades improve, you're not allowed to go to church. So what is the message there? The message is that God is not a, a, God is a a, a reward. God is not a relationship. And this, I'm now just like, okay, just speculating, huh? Because could it be that maybe the parents had a late night out on on Saturday, they went to watch the midnight movie, or they, they, they were in a friend's house and enjoying themselves uh, sipping choice wines and, and therefore slept late on Saturday and then wake up late on Sunday and uh, it's just Sunday school, uh, just Sunday school, it's just cool club uh, I don't even know what cool means, but so let's not go to church or we come late to church, we bring our children and we say Lord, I'm late, why? Children uh. Uh, children always get a blame right, for, for the family coming late to church so, the question is, what kind of example are we setting for, for our children? What are we setting as an example, really? Let me call it what it is, okay? When you know what is right to do and you don't do it, it is sin. So, we are setting not a bad example, we are setting a sinful example. It's, it's that simple. Okay, I want to explain, take this opportunity also to explain uh, baptism and communion for children in in PPH. Uh, You know, we baptize children of all ages, and the youngest, about the youngest recent years was five years old uh, recently. Uh, Anna, we baptized her. We actually had some issues over that, and we had to go back to the drawing board to rethink should we or should we not baptize? And I even asked around my pastor friend, I sent an email to eight pastors, all from Brethren Churches, and different sorts of reply came. Some say, just to make it easier, 12 years old and above. We don't even entertain baptizing anybody below 12, because it's very difficult. One day, somebody with a two-year-old baby will say, hey, my baby understands the gospel. Can you baptize my baby? And and if you do that, and then another one says, uh, you baptize that baby, how come you don't baptize my baby? Uh, so it's very troublesome, just make it 12 years old and uh, set it straight. <coughs> so, but we, we honour and we respect every church uh, decision, right? So among the diaconate we discuss this is how we will do it, right? So long as the parents can vouch that the child understands the gospel, and so long as one of the Sunday school teachers, one of the cool Club teachers, also say the same thing, we will baptise the child. So that's our stand, Okay. The stand of this diaconate. Maybe in future diaconates, we may go to the 12-year-old when this thing gets out of hand, when parents are quarreling. You see, la, you baptize his, her kid, you don't baptize my kid. Uh, maybe I don't know, okay? But that's our current stand. Because children are just, are just precious. They're not just just kids, just kids. They don't understand. Uh and 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 all that, okay? You know what I mean. Likewise for communion, same thing. Okay? Uh so just get it clear so long as you as a parent uh feel that it is right for your child, he understands the, the solemnity of the, the Holy Communion, that it is sacrifice, it is Jesus on the cross. So long as they under, you, know, you think your child understands, then, then let's take communion together. And that's real family worship. Okay. So those are the, the two things. Uh, oh, let me take this opportunity also. I'm all over the place today. Uh, how many of us here became Christians, uh, let's use 18 and below. When you were 18 or below. Let me just get a show of hands. Not so many. yeah. Uh, maybe about 40%. Uh, I, I think it might be slightly different in the in second service. But I tell you that American churches, uh, American churches, their statistics is two-thirds. Okay, we are about a bit more than a third. Nah? A bit more than a third. But in American churches, and I think in our second service, it'll be about two-thirds. And that shows you the, the, the reach of the gospel into a child's heart. Okay, so let's be very mindful of that. You know, we always talk about mighty men and women of God, the warriors of God. But what about the mighty children of God? And there are many. There are many. Oh, this is, I wanted to show this uh, when I say I got very hurt that I don't love children. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, some of the precious children in, in, our, in our church. Okay, the mighty children of God. You know about Miriam, the sister, the elder sister of Moses and how she was so smart right? that when the brother was in this little reed basket floating down the river about to be drowned she ran along and she watched, I, or she I don't know what she was thinking, and then she was so smart to spot the opportunity when Pharaoh's daughter fished the basket out of the river, and she ran to Pharaoh's daughter and said, "Hey, I know a wet mother who can come and nurse this child," and she brought the real mother to nurse the baby, and it's like a win-win uh, situation. What would an adult say? an adult say. Yeah, that's the law of the land. Oh, it's a terrible law. But the child will just sink and drown? I think that's what an, an adult would say. But a child would be, I don't know, full of, of wonder about seeing this thing sailing down the river. And then, and then she had inspiration from God, I believe, and brought the child back to the rightful son, the rightful mother to the son. <coughs> the story of Samuel, whom Hannah, his mother, uh, gave away to serve the Lord in the temple and Samuel heard God's voice and ran to Eli and said, what do you call me? You call me? What would the adult say? In Eli's case, he was still a priest and he, I think he did good. But what would you say if your child come to you and say, I heard you call me, go back to sleep. Ah. You know, I think we might have said that. Samuel turned out to be I think, one of the greatest prophets in Israel. What about King David? His father looked at him as just a kid. Just a kid. You remember? When Samuel came to look for a king, he sent his eldest, tallest son. Just a kid was not even featured. And when this just a kid went to the battlefield to carry cheese and, and bread for his brothers, he was insulted by his brothers. He said, don't come and disturb us. We are doing adult business. And what he ended up, he ended up as a king, a poet, a man after God's own heart. Okay, I saw the next thing on, uh, on a Facebook thing I want to show you because I think it's just so great. It's all about, about David and Goliath. Okay, David and Goliath. Who will fight me? If I defeat you, you will be my slaves. If you defeat me, we will be your slaves. I can't be fine in the name of the dog. ha 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 ha. Do I look like a dog that you come at me with sticks and stones? Oh! Praise the Lord. Oh, sorry, the video didn't come out so well. She touched the father's forehead. And the father... <laughs> Praise the name of the Lord. I thought it was just so great. A little child, that sense of, of innocence. So, how do we humble ourselves as Jesus? Oh, no, some more. There is, uh, there is Naaman's slave girl, you, re- you remember in 2 in Kings chapter 5. Uh, she was a slave, <laughs> she was carried from, from captivity into exile and to serve this general. And this general had leprosy. What would the adult say? The adult would say, "Serve you right. Huh? Capture me. serve you right. Let him die. Don't play with him. But the slave girl saw him as a fellow human being and even recommended um, a, a prophet, Elijah, right? To, to heal him. Or is it Elisha? <laughs> anyway, the last one in the New Testament, the boy with uh, the five loaves and two fishes. John chapter 6 what would the adult do? Hide the food. Hey, 5,000 people, you know? 5,000 people going to share my lunch? No way. I'll just hide my food. I'll grow in the corner somewhere and I'll eat my food. I got lunch. I brought it. You didn't bring it. You get hungry. Simple. But this boy offered his food and then a great miracle uh, happened. What would the adult say? Don't play. Don't play with these 5,000 people. You know, don't play with my lunch. Right. So, how do we humble ourselves like a, like a child that Jesus tells us to? And what, what has a child got that we have lost? Let me just share three very simple points and that will be the end for today. Right. Firstly, I think